Gresham College Presents, Is One Individual's Radicalism Another's Right to Free Speech? by Professor Joe Delahunty, QC. Well, good evening, everyone. I have to say, I'm absolutely delighted to see the hall full. It's a grim and grotty evening. It's been a hard couple of weeks of news. And I thought the last thing that would happen on a Thursday evening is that good souls would come out to listen to more tales of woe which is invariably what I will be touching upon in this lecture. So thank you enormously for turning up tonight. Um, Now, uh, this lecture, as you can see, is called Is One Individual's Radicalism Another's Right to Free Speech? And this is the second in the series of lectures I'm giving, which is called When Worlds Collide. The intention being to try to open the door to the family courtroom, to try to enable you to cross the threshold to understand what type of decisions are made in the family courtroom arena so that you have a better informed perspective which you then read various newspaper articles. Because family courts, unlike criminal courts, are places where unless you're an accredited member of the press or unless you're involved in the case, you won't be walking through those doors to hear the stories. And that's because children's cases, which is what I specialise in, are kept confidential. They're heard in chambers, which means in private, because the subjects we talk about within the courtroom are incredibly personal, incredibly painful, incredibly graphic, and the rights of the child to have their right to private family life kept confidential as they grow up takes precedence over the public coming into the court arena. So you will not know much of what goes on in the world that I trespass into on a daily basis, and the theory behind these lectures was to try to let you enter a specialist subject on a monthly basis so that by the end of the series of lectures you have a better understanding about what we are doing. So, uh, without more ado, uh, let's turn to this subject. So, uh, one individual's radicalism is another's right to free speech, question mark. The UK is properly tolerant of religious diversity, so how does a family court determine when rights to freedom of conscience and religion cross a legal line by putting children at risk of harm. Well, the purpose of this lecture is to take you behind headlines like this, to explain what the courts do uh, when they seek to protect children, to apply the general guidance of the laws that we have covering the whole spectrum of children's cases to radicalism, and to explain why these cases are, at the moment, being exclusively reserved to the High Court, which is the division that deals with the most serious level of cases across the land. And then to talk you through some of the guidance that accumulated over the last year so that you get, get to see the learning curve, effectively, about the way in which the courts are dealing with these matters. Oops. Now, before I get to that point, I should say, I don't know how many of you actually came to the first lecture or have had a chance to look at the YouTube video because one of the basic ingredients of that which I'm about to describe is to remind you that we are talking about a family court. We are not talking about a criminal court. And so for those of you that don't know the difference, the difference is in a family court, a judge makes the decisions. They determine the law and the fact. There is no jury. Uh, There are no press, save accredited members. And like I say, it's a matter that's confidential to the family concerned. Whereas in crime... You have a jury system, members of the public are allowed in. But the crucial distinction between the two arenas is the balance of the the burden of proof. In a criminal court, you are going to have to prove a case uh, beyond all reasonable doubt. In a care case, a family case, you're going to have to prove it on the balance of probabilities. So think about the way the scales of justice work in that scenario. 
in a family court because the primary decision is determined to do with the welfare of a child. You're looking at the balance of probabilities. So is it more likely than not that a child has suffered harm? And if a child has suffered harm, who is the person that's led to that harm being generated and caused? It's not about proving guilt or innocence. It's much wider than that. It's about understanding whether a child is safe in the home with its carers or not. And the principle that the courts apply is that of least intervention because a child should, in all circumstances, unless they are at risk of harm within that family, be allowed to be brought up within the family home. So that's a broad introductory concept, just so that when we go through the next, the next examples, you are clear about the basis that we are talking about the judicial intervention. So, headlines here. The aim of a family court is to protect children from serious harm. Not minor harm, not irritating harm, but serious, significant harm. Radicalism cases are no different to all of those that we deal with in the family courts, but the concept that a child may wish to leave the United Kingdom to travel to Syria, to ISIS-controlled territory, there to become, for example, a jihadi bride or a warrior, was such an alien concept over two years ago that the law, the practice, the judicial guidance simply wasn't there in readiness to understand how to respond to this situation. Similarly, the concept that parents, um, otherwise doing well within this country, bringing up their children without any um, level of abuse, might want to take their children, pack up their car, leave their homes, leave their family, and go across country in order to try to join Syria and ISIS within Syria. And the question must be posed, why would they do that? Well, you need to have a historical context, not too far through, but think that on the 29th of June 2014, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the declared leader of the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, otherwise known as ISIS, declared that he stood at the head of a caliphate. And that's a word you may have heard quite a lot banded around over the course of the last um, 18 months or so. But essentially it was a call, a call to arms, a call to loyalty, a call to morality and a call of Muslims. That If they were good Muslims following the true faith, then they would leave wherever they were to come to join the caliphate state, to come to join the Muslim state in Syria and Iraq. And it was a duty imposed upon them. So that was the call... June 29th, 2014, as I say, and that's why there was a build-up where in the period of some, I don't know, eight, ten months or so, the consequences of that call had not yet been felt in the family courts because people don't suddenly respond like that. They listen to the message, they learn, they inquire, they research, they talk to their friends, they talk to their family, they talk to religious believers. And in the course of that discussion, they come to form a view about whether it's a genuine call whether it's one they're morally obliged to take up or whether or not they intend to remain in the UK. Decisions have to be made. But there's a long, long bubble in between June 29, 2014 to the point at which the cases started coming through into the High Court and the County Courts in around about January, February, March of 2015. At the last lecture, there was a quote that I gave everyone, which I shall read out now, which illustrated the... Not the surprise, that's not the right word. Which illustrated the awareness of the High Court in particular, that they were starting to see cases that weren't simply one-offs, that they were starting to see a trickle of cases involving children, teenage children 
who were attempting to travel to Syria and where they were being detained at airports um, because parents were reported them missing, for example, or where parents were being detained at ports with their children. And what was one case started becoming more cases. And so this was why in March 2015, Mr Justice Hazen described this of the family court system. The family court system, particularly the family division, is and always has been, in my view, in the vanguard of change in life and society. Where there are changes in medicine or in technology or cultural change, so often they resonate first within the family unit. Here, the type of harm I've been asked to evaluate is a different facet of vulnerability for children than that which the courts have had to deal with in the past. And he was absolutely right. What he was dealing with was a number of teenage children who had independently sought to access both income and means in order to travel out of the jurisdiction. One particular case involved a teenage boy within a family whose two brothers had already been killed in Syria, who had a third brother who was in Syria and injured, and an uncle who'd previously been detained in Guatemala Bay. From that family history, this child nonetheless wished to pursue the cause and to go to Syria to join um, his uh, fellow Muslims to fight on behalf of ISIS. And it was the court's intervention and protecting him intervening for him to make a decision on his behalf that the court didn't think was otherwise in his best interest to pursue, that within wardship proceedings his passport was seized. So that was one of the illustrations that Hayden was talking about. There were a trickle. They were being held in the county courts, they were being held all over the land, and word, what was going on came through by word of mouth. There were very few reported cases. You got to hear about them on the legal grapevine because one of us might be in them, you got to hear about them sometimes on judicial circuits. You got to hear about them through um, other solicitors who'd been involved. But there was very little guidance. And that situation continued where a trickle became a flood until the point where Mr Justice Mumby, I'm sorry, our President, Mr uh, uh, James Mumby, issued guidance in October 2015, which uh, was particularly created in order to try to formalise what, what was otherwise happening across the United Kingdom. Cases after October 2015 were reserved to the High Court, as I say, the jurisdiction which is reserved for the most serious and complex cases. And essentially over the course of the last year and a half, where those cases have remained, a large body of guidance has been emanating from the judges who've been hearing these cases. So that's a long introduction for me to explore in this lecture these matters. So what do we mean by radicalism? I'll take you to that. Human rights, where do we draw the balance between right to free speech and uh, the interference that the courts may make within a family life? What's the problem? And that's a really critical question, which I'd like to explore with you and, and invite questions on afterwards. Um, what's the trigger for intervention? And then I'll take you through, just in brief, what the mechanisms are for the court to intervene if it's required to do so by a family member or a state authority, such as a local authority. And then evidence gathering, what does that mean? And then lastly, what happens at the end of this? What have we learnt over the course of the last 18 months? So radicalism. You've read about it in newspapers. You may have formed a view, but what does it mean? I certainly have difficulty describing it. One might recognise it when it's an extreme form, but bad cases, bad law... Um, aren't necessarily following from good definitions. So I have been guided by this definition, 
by um, Holman Jay, given as far ago as March 2014. Now, they're on screen, so let's start off with what should become, should be obvious. Radicalisation is a vague and non-specific word which different people may use to mean different things. There's quite a lot of material in this case, as it was, to the effect that the elder of the children are committed Muslims who like to attend and do attend at a mosque and wish to display religious observance. This nation and our culture are tolerant of religious diversity and there could be no objection whatsoever to a child being exposed, often quite intensively, to the religious practices and observances of the child's parents and uh, parents and parents and plural. That must be right. We are not here in the United Kingdom to police religions of whatever nature they are when um, it is a right of freedom of expression and belief that those beliefs are both um, respected and allowed to continue and flourish, save to the point where they may interfere with other rights. So for that purpose, there could be no objection. I would take it to the second part of this quote. If and insofar as what is meant in this case by radicalising means no more than that a set of Muslim beliefs and practices is being strongly instilled in these children, that cannot be regarded in any way objectionable or inappropriate. The court is not there to punish piety. So what do we mean, therefore, by... Um, the type of radicalisation that leads to concern about a child. And that's the last part, which is in red. On the other hand, if by radicalising is meant negatively influencing a child with radical fundamentalist thought, which is associated with terrorism, that clearly has a different matter altogether. The clue is when the word terrorism is added, which has a connotation of violence. Because what Holman Jay is doing in that case is properly distinguishing traditionalist beliefs from those connected with violent extremism. What he said there predated Section 26 of the Counterterrorism and Security Act 2015, which placed a duty on specified authorities, including local authorities and schools, to have regard to due regard to the need to prevent people from being drawn into terrorism. Now, I confess, until I tracked back what was being referred to in the press as the prevent duty, I had not realised the significance of the word prevent in that particular clause of that particular act, but there it is. Because it led to... It led to this definition, which is the prevent duty guidance. And there's been some controversy about how it's implemented, but the definition is one that remains good within the papers. Radicalisation refers to the process by which a person comes to support terrorism and extremist ideologies, ideologies associated with terrorist groups. So you can see the link there. It's not that you're religious. It's not that you're pious. It's that at some point that journey in belief crosses the line, or it may be a curve, or it may be an incline, to the point at which your belief system starts to move from uh, peaceful or maybe even active um, proponents of the religious beliefs you have, into moving into violent support of terrorism or support of violent terrorism. It doesn't matter where the violence comes from, but you are crossing the cusp. Now, as I say, in the cases we deal with, there is no jury. Cases are dealt with on the balance of probability. And within our system, nonetheless, although there's a different burden of proof, human rights don't step outside the family courtroom door. So I've taken you through those elements. Let's look to see what the Human Rights Act has to do to assist us with, because there is a very fine balance sometimes 
between whether a parent has a pious belief or whether they've tipped over into radicalisation. And we need to remember that one shouldn't castigate someone for being an active, vehement, agitated, sometimes unwelcome proponent of the faith they have. And that's why we turn to these articles. So, Article 9, everyone's got a right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion. Article 10, the right to freedom of expression. Article 11, the right to freedom of association. Now, that's lots of words up there, and I'm a simple creature. The way I understand that is very basic, which is you have a right to be able to think and believe what you wish. You have a right to say what you think and believe. And you have a right to associate with people who may or may not share your views, your your beliefs and thoughts. And those are the rights which enable us to go on marches, enable us to demonstrate, and which are respected uh, within this jurisdiction. But they are not absolute rights. I'll come on to that in a moment. The question is, at what point does the state, through the local authority, because it's social services, local authorities in our cases that intervene primarily on behalf of children if family members don't, At what point does the state and the family court have the right to intervene in a family's religious and political choices? Is one person's radicalism another's right to freedom of speech and religious belief, even if those beliefs are abhorrent to the majority of society? Because the court is not there to be the guardians of morality. That's not their function. They are only, a child and a family are only in court if the welfare of the child requires it to be so. And the welfare of the child requires it to be so because there is a concern that the actions of the parent or the child concern is going to cause them significant harm. Welfare is the paramount issue that the court has to consider. That's not morality. That's about actual harm based on significant harm, which needs to be evidenced and properly tested within the court. Bear in mind that the cases we are looking at didn't suddenly come into creation because of radicalism radicalism cases. As far back in 2007, we had wise judges um, who were talking about, for example, political activism in the English Defence League. That may be a deeply abhorrent type of organisation to belong to. It may well be that many of the parents that we act for in cases are criminals. They may be benefit cheats. They may discriminate against ethnic or other minorities. They may belong to political parties that we will cross the road to be associated in order to avoid being associated with. But that does not matter unless by their actions they are harming a child. And that takes us on to Article 8. Article 8 protects our private life and family life. Those are two things. I often mix them up, and it's my fault. It's sloppy, sloppy language. I often talk about the right to private family life, but they are two distinct things. What's family life? Well, family life embraces anything that encompasses the stable relationship within the family home. It doesn't have to be a mother and a father. It can be a grandparent relationship with a child. It can be any combination um, of any gender, as long as there is a child at the heart of it. That is our family life. We We are programmed to grow up together and to come within a unit. That's what we mean by family life. What about private life, though? Private life means that we are entitled to go around our business without interference from the state unless it's necessary. So, for example, we have a right to personal autonomy. That means that we should be able to go to countries that we wish to go to, we should be able to go onto planes we wish to go onto, we should get onto ferries we wish to go onto. We should have a respect for our private information. So what we say on our private social media, Facebook, 
with appropriate settings. WhatsApp, Twitter, letters, we expect that to remain confidential, don't we? What about um, state surveillance? If you go to a demo, um, you don't expect to be photographed and recorded and for that imagery to be stored about you, do you? But nonetheless, those rights, as I said, are qualified because they're qualified if um, they need to be trammelled because there is a risk of harm either to the society in which these rights are respected or to a child who would otherwise be affected within the family home. So in family cases, remember what I say? The welfare of the child is paramount. And so a child's right to be in a home, a parent's right to look after their child is not unqualified because a child's right to live in a home free from abuse and not to be abused by the very people who it looks to by protection trumps the carer's right to have them within the home. Does that make sense? So you don't have a child and thereby acquire the right to do to that child that which you wish. The child's right to be protected from abuse trumps your right to treat that child as you may otherwise think is right or appropriate. And that's the point at which the state has a duty to intervene and does do. In radicalism cases, you're not talking about evidence of physical abuse. That is very rare in the cases we deal about. You're talking about the impact of a parent or teenage child or a child's religious beliefs on whether or not they are functioning in their best interests or whether they are compromising the psychological and physical well-being of a child within the um, home. This is a good example. I called this up in order to show the very point I mean, which is about the balance between moral duty and the necessity of the courts to intervene in uh, the rights of a family life. So this came, comes from a case called Re B, and that's exactly the point I was saying. Just to make you sure that what I'm saying does have a decent heritage and a stable and isn't just the words of wisdom of Joe Delahunty QC. Um, this, this case... I think set out precisely and clearly the point which I've made, which is criminals benefit cheats, ethnic or sexual minorities who are discriminated against and loudly and opinionated so from parents, vile political parties. All of these follies are visited upon their children who may well adopt or model them in their own lives, but those children could not be removed for those reasons. Because there has to be a link between those beliefs and uh, the type of harm that is alleged to have been inflicted upon a child. So, what is the problem? What type of harm are we talking about? I've identified two types of harm, which is the type of serious harm, including death, that might befall a child if they take it into their head that they want to travel to the war zone, as I said, to become a fighter or a so-called jihadi bride. But when a parent or competent child makes a decision to travel to Syria to join ISIS, they do so at great personal risk to themselves, we know that the regime is brutal and almost certainly the route to ISIS is a one-way destination because it's a war zone. Once that decision is made, it's, it's, it's difficult to turn back. When adults make mistakes, they're entitled to live and learn by them. They're entitled to live and then die by them. But we don't expect children to make those decisions without others stepping in to properly consider whether they are the right decisions for that child. And so when a child makes that decision, which has such fundamental near-fatal consequences, and a parent doesn't step in to intervene, that's when the court does. Now, what about what happens on the journey? Because talking about children or parents who've actually packed their car up or gone so far as going through an airport means they've already made the decision 
to follow the call and to join ISIS. But that doesn't happen just like that. The religious journey towards radicalism is emotionally and psychologically abusive. The propaganda that ISIS produces pollutes the web. It's horrific in its imagery as well as its message. And the propaganda contaminates those who view it. We see it in imagery, we see it in word, and we see it in songs. And I say that because I've had to see it. It's from an informed perspective. To hear a man screaming as he is set alight, with his death being filmed by a high-resolution camera, and the camera zooming in to his flesh as it melts, and he continues to be alive, and for that screaming to go on is horrific. It is abusive to watch. To see people shot through the skull, with their skull exploding, is emotionally abusive. To see ranks of infidels lined up and shot and see the act of death is emotionally abusive. For a child to see any of those things implants images in its brain that they should be saved from. To see those type of images of infidels and then to be contrasted with images of the martyrs as they are photographed lying said to smell of roses rather than decay, with their faces and their mouths fixed in a, in, a, uh, in a posture that's meant to be smiling as they go towards heaven, gives a very, very distorted idea about what death in a war zone is. That's the imagery, and there's lots of it. The ISIS manuals that we have cause to look at in these cases are hugely explicit. They're to be found on what's called the dark web, because you don't get them through any normal server. They come with specific instructions on how to disguise radicalised action. They give a step-by-step -step guide as how to make weapons. They give you a step-by-step -step guide as how to make contacts within Syria. They give you a step-by-step -step guide how to conceal your actions from the closest to you, your family members. They tell you how to adjust your behaviour so no concerns or suspicions are arisen by those who you live and sleep with. And they do so because they are grooming the young person in order to behave in the way they wish to support them to do, which is to join ISIS. The manuals are extremely explicit. We can't get access to them unless we see them through police-controlled authorities in the main. But if you want to, you can explore them, you can obtain them, because not only can you get them through the dark web, but the guidance that is promoted and offered is also how to disguise your footsteps. So you walk into this world and then you're given a broom to sweep over the footprints so that no one knows what you're doing. It is dangerous stuff. The songs and the sheets are just as important because they carry a message and it's a regular beat, very evocative words with music. Never think that music is not our best music message giver in the world because that's exactly what is also promoted within this world. So the path to make a decision to go to ISIS for a child is one that has already, in all likelihood, created harm psychologically to the child that's been exposed to those images. What are the options, though, when plans to travel to Syria, for example, are thwarted because the family is detained at a port, possibly by a customs search, possibly because the police are waiting there. So the trigger for intervention, namely that the family and the children may be leaving the jurisdiction, is dealt with because they're picked up, they're arrested, they're back in this jurisdiction. What's, what do we do then with a situation where otherwise good parents who've made a bad ethical choice 
What do we do then with the children who they love and adore, who love and adore them, if the risk to flight has been identified and managed? Because removal of otherwise well-cared-for children from a loving Muslim home can appear to those unaware of the reason why they've been taken as an act of persecution, which ties in extremely well with the propaganda that is posted around the uh, country by those who promote ISIS, that there is a persecution plan where the state is taking children away from, from, away from Muslim families. So there is a fine balance to be drawn because people do make mistakes. The question is whether those mistakes are fundamental, whether they're irrevocable, and whether there is a chance to change because a child's right is in the family home, if at all possible. So that takes me to, I think, the points about which we as lawyers intervene. What's the spur to come to court? Who can apply to court? What's the evidence that drives the case forward? Who's got the evidence? What is the evidence? What happens in the end? So... Four types of categories of cases that we have. And this image, you must have seen so many times. This was one of the first that started being splashed across the press pages. The three girls, incredibly bright, incredibly able, who left a school together in order to go jointly um, to travel to Syria. So they fall into the first group, children planning, attempting to plan or being groomed to travel to Syria. Other groups, like I've said, parents planning or attempting to travel to Syria with their children. Children at risk of being radicalised, either within the home, because they're living with someone that's already taken the message, or by external influences, by which I mean the internet, by which I mean going to marches, by which I mean making associations within the community. And then lastly, children at risk of being involved themselves in terrorist activities. I know it's a horrible concept, but it happens. What are the routes to protection? Right, well, police protection... That tends to happen when there's an emergency arising, possibly down at the ports, maybe made subject to a police protection order that lasts for 72 hours. Effectively, it's a holding regime to allow the local authority to be notified and to make arrangements before the case is handed over. The order requires the officer to have reasonable cause to believe that a child is likely to suffer significant harm. So hold that in mind when we talk about evidence in a moment. Um, other cases may begin in family uh, proceedings by way of an emergency protection order, which is, does pretty much what it says on the tin. It's an emergency. There needs to be protection. There is an order. Um, in terms of the type of jurisdiction that's been used, we move between wardship and uh, the children at proceedings. Both of them are very fluid. They can be used to adjust to the circumstances. Wardship is a situation which was almost redundant in many ways until these cases almost reinvigorated its use because what wardship does is it vests parental responsibility, it vests decision-making in the court, in the judge. And it's up to the court to delegate any residual matters to either the parents or to the local authority. So the child becomes a ward of the court. The court judge effectively becomes the guardian of that child. It is an incredibly creative, um, intuitive, amazingly powerful order which can be made. And indeed, it has been in a number of these cases. The other route is the one more familiar to us as public lawyers, which is public law proceedings. Now, anyone that didn't come to the first lecture and needs to understand some of the words that I now start to talk about, please go back to the basics, because concepts such as threshold are highly relevant to what we are talking about here. Threshold. Okay, a little bit of an introduction, just for those to prompt memory. What is threshold? What do we mean? Well, basically, the, the local authority 
may start proceedings because they have reasonable cause to believe that a child is at risk of harm. But there comes a point where the evidence has been gathered when that reasonable belief is properly to be tested, both by the parents and indeed by the child. And so this is the point at which the evidence that's been gathered by the local authority and properly served and provided to the parents and the child, and the parents and the child, child being separately represented, have filed their own evidence should they wish in return. It's at the point of threshold where the local authority asks the judge to walk through the door in order to make findings that means the local authority is entitled to remain involved in the child and family's life. If the local authority doesn't get its findings and if the local authority can't establish that threshold has been crossed, that door is very firmly shut and the local authority walks away because there is no room for suspicion at this point. You have to have hard facts with hard evidence properly challenged by those parents and the children who are separately legally represented from the local authority. It is one of the basic principles that reassures me that what we do in public law cases has got real purpose and drive. Because I act for local authorities, I act for parents, I act for children. A threshold criteria is exactly needed because otherwise local authorities, with their initiating power, with the point that they have the best communication, for example, with the police in these cases, can have the upper hand for too long, for too far. And so one has to stop, to stand, to pause, to think, to argue, to challenge, and to make the judge decide when the parents and the parties can't decide themselves, and that's what threshold is. So, let's go back again. Threshold. Radical belief system. What's the difference between being pious and having a radicalised belief? And what's the link between the belief and the harm that you believe may be caused to a child? Because you've got to have the link between the two. And the actions of the parents and the harm caused have got to be attributable. So do you see there's got to be a link between the two? It's no point simply saying, for example, that I, dis I fundamentally disagree with the views that this parent, this parent is holding. Unless I can prove that those beliefs are causing harm or causing the risk of harm to a child and that that harm can cross back to the parent's actions. So you've got to have a link. It can't be disjointed and you can't leap from A to B just because you're suspicious. So that talk is to um, the prevent duty. Let's move on to evidence gathering. Now, I've talked about the type of cases that have come before our courts. I've mentioned the prevent duty. You've heard about the channel programme, or anyone will have done if they are interested. The channel programme was initiated because, as part of the government's anti-extremism programme, over concerns that children may be at risk of radicalisation, and basically society was no longer acting as a good neighbour and picking these materials up. Between January 2012 and December 15, 1,839 children aged 15 and under have been referred to channel. And that seems an enormous number. But what happens to those children? Because there's been a lot of debate about how many misconceived referrals there are made, children drawing a cucumber that's misrepresented as a fire gun, whether or not the, whether the referrals are an over-trigger reaction, an unfortunate phrase, but possibly apt, or whether they're genuine is one that needs to be taken into account. And the channel programme is voluntary. You do not have to be involved in it, even if you are referred. So of those 1,839 children aged 15 and under, we have no idea how many of them 
engaged in channel work because it's voluntary. We have no idea whether the engagement simply fell away because it was an excessive um, reaction to, uh, by uh, someone in authority, nor do we know how many of those cases ultimately end up in court. But I can tell you it's certainly not 1,839 people. Um, the cases that myself and my colleagues deal with tend to be the crisis ones. They tend to be when there's a trigger action because a family's been stopped at the port. Um, whole families may disappear unnoticed. They aren't relevant to what we do in the family court unless a child is involved. Whole families can make mistakes, but unless there is a child that needs protection within it, that's within their rights to do so. Let's move on, if we may. Go on to that. Police cooperation and its limits. Now, local authorities, gifted and talented as their workers are, haven't been trained in anti-terrorism surveillance. Social workers that are looking after the children within our communities did not receive training on radicalism. Social workers did not expect this to cross their path, and therefore they were ill-equipped in the early days to know how to respond. And there was therefore a heavy degree of reliance on the information the police had gathered, because it's the police that have got the ability to accrue the evidence that I pointed back in terms of surveillance and monitoring. And the evidence that the police gather won't necessarily be related to one family. It may be related to a whole cohort of people who are associates to whom the child or the family may simply be on the fringes. So the guidance that was issued by Mumby um, in October 2015 came out with heavy warnings, capital letters, underscored, fluorescent writing to those of us that tend to be the awkward squad, which is, you need to ask for disclosure in a measured way. You need to ask for disclosure that's only directly relevant for the child. You're not to start on a fishing expedition. And you, Ms. Delahunty, need to know that if I say you can't have it, it's because there's going to be a good public reason for you not to have it, which means that the evidence that you might want may otherwise impact on the police investigation in that family or may impact upon the police's investigation of what's called other persons of interest or upon issues of national security at large. Now, that is a really tough message to get as a brief, because I want everything. I want everything so I feel in control, so I know how to advise my clients. But that division between what I should have in order to do the job that I do, acting on behalf of the parents or, for example, the child, does need to be balanced, because to have everything may mean that other families um, and other um, interests are put at risk. So disclosure that we are given has to be necessary, it has to be appropriately given, and in some cases, when we do argue that we want to see, for example, the manuals, we do get to see them, but we get to see them under um, police control. So we go to various police departments um, where we're seeing documents under very close supervision, we're not allowed to take photocopies, we're allowed to read and take notes. I think that's probably a proper balance. What about other um, issues that we may look at? Because it's not simply police evidence. The local authorities have had to acquire knowledge and start to work collaboratively with the educational and social services. And these are the type of things um, that we tend to come across in the cases we deal with. I emphasise by this list, one, that no one factor is important uh, over and above anything else. Two, that these aren't seen in every case. Three, that you have to look at everything in the round. And so these are just a hint about some of the things that, come, that we look at and we come across and think might require explanation. So there might be potential relevance in the fact that a baby has not been immunised 
that the child attends a faith school or the children are homeschooled. Um, it might be that there's a particular imam from which the family is seeking guidance who is a person of concern to the police. Financial activity may be hugely revealing. If a parent is engaging on an uncharacteristic level of eBay activity or has tried to take out unsecured credit, particularly if they're going out buying mountain gear with the monies, then you want to know what's going on with the money and you want to know what's going on in terms of their means of accessing it. When the route um, to a port or airport um, means that there is a transition in the appearance of the parents from being pious observant Muslims to those wearing Western garb, there's a question mark. Why is it that a wife and mother who has religiously taken heed of the obligation to behave and, protect, uh, and dress modestly, some wire on the way to the airport or the port takes off her burqa, takes off her abaya, thereby revealing her face and her hair? Why does she therefore suddenly, why is she seen wearing Western clothing, jeans and T-shirts, thereby exposing the shape of her body and her flesh when she hasn't done that for one year, two years, five years hitherto? Why would a man shave his beard when having a beard is a mark um, that is treasured and prized? Why would he wear Western gear? Why, I like this one, why on a short city weekend trip to Germany, going for two nights albeit with a return ticket paid for the ferry, uh, and a family comprising with a mother, a father and two children, why would you have 114 sanitary towels? Why would you have six packs of nappies covering various ages? Why would you have a balaclava? And why would you have hiking gear when you're going in the summer? Just asking. Question marks? If a short family trip has been planned, to, for example, to Germany, why would you need multiple unsealed, um, multiple sealed SIM cards stowed away in the car? Why would you need GPS navigation that takes you well beyond the Germany destination to other countries? Why would you need a translation Google app that goes further than simply the countries to and from Germany? Just asking. No one of these issues is probative of a radicalised belief in itself. You have to look at the family in the round. And you acquire a knowledge about why these things may be relevant by case by case, which is why there are very few of us do these cases and we trek around the country. I didn't know, for example, why a very precise amount of cash had been acquired through eBay activity and been acquired through um, unsecured loans and amounted to £3,000 in cash just seems such an odd amount. Why would it be £3,000? Why not five? Why not two? Until I read in another case, a manual produced by ISIS, which prescribed precisely that amount, told you how to get it, eBay activity, unsecured loans, and told you at which route and at what stages you were going to need that fund to dip into. So we live, we learn, we find out. Other material that we look at is social media. In any case, whether it's these cases or whether, for example, a case of sex abuse or whether it's about violence between partners, social media is evidential gold because people communicate in a way they never expect to be seen or read. So accessing WhatsApp, for which you can only join a conversation if you're invited, shows your selection of people you want to be associated with as well as that which you trust to speak to them about. Twitter. Twitter, how many Twitters do you, do you... Do you tweet automatically? Do you select? Do you self-select? Do you quote? Who are you tweeting to? Who are you tweeting about? 
What about Facebook? Who you're Facebooking with? What photographs are you showing? What's it saying about the way you're running your life on a day-to-day basis when you have no idea that months later people like me are going to be picking over it and putting together a chronology? Like I say, it's evidential gold, and that's why we acquire it, and that's why we use it. It can be to our benefit when we're acting for parents. It can be to our huge disadvantage when we're acting for parents. But it is, as I say, a a mine um, to dig into. So what do we do about this information? I think there's one caveat that I'd like to add before going on to the final stage, which is what do we do with these cases at the end? Because at the family bar, we prize our independence highly. Barristers are self-employed. We only belong to a set of chambers because it's convenient to do so, and because we're quite sociable people, we like to mix with people. We share resources, we share secretaries, we share the clerks, but we are fundamentally self-employed. That means we have choices. It means that we don't, for example, become a pool of lawyers, such as those that the CPS use, the Crown Prosecution Service, use when they're dealing with terrorism cases because they have a stable of lawyers that they go to all the time and they have in-house solicitors. And I have a question mark in the type of work we do in these cases, which is if I act for the local authority time and time again, and that gives me access to police information and police contacts, which may not be shared with the other parties... And the police let me in on the no, because they know the players. They've dealt with this for so many years. They're so far ahead of the game. They can, they can tell you what to look for. They can tell you where it fits into a whole pattern of world that they have engaged in for years. Why would they share that information with me in one case when next month I may be cross-examining them? So the independence of the family bar, I think, is something that we need to grapple with because certainly it's not something I'm prepared to relinquish. But the way in which we as lawyers deal with these cases may mean there's a gradual evolution of those who end up acting for one party or the other. I think that's a very retrograde step. So a word of caution there. Right, final stage, disposal. You're doing well. Galloping towards the end here. No one's fallen asleep yet, or maybe one person possibly very slightly, but you're doing well. You're doing well. Right, what do we do? Okay, so proceedings concern children across a huge range of ages. Very few, in fact, at the moment I'm not sure any one of them, even when findings have been found in relation to the child or in relation to the parents, have actually led to the child being placed permanently away from the family. Now, given I have just seen you squirm and grimace when I took you through some of the type of emotional harm that can be caused by looking at the images that are associated with radicalism, you may now be turning 180 degrees and thinking, how can you possibly, in this court system, allow a child to be exposed to that, and then after you've got findings made, you don't take them away? Well... That's because every case, every child and every family is very different. And we have this process of investigation because you always have to go into these cases believing there is a capacity to change. Because love within a family unit is the most magnetic bond at all. And you do not wish to remove a child unless it's absolutely necessary. So a notable aspect of these cases is that however extreme the parents' views are, we don't come across children who have been neglected and physically abused. They're not dirty. They're not ill-fed. They're not starved. They're not receiving education. They're not receiving nurture. They're not receiving love. What they have received 
or been the subject of, is a very distorted view of religion, which has potentially affected their parents' ability in order to look after them safely. And it's in that situation you look for ways to creatively take the case forward. Because, for example, let's throw this one at you. Okay, so in a case, you stop a family at the port. It's overladen with all the things I've just described. And in that car is a six-month-old baby and a 14-year-old child. The risk of flight has been stopped because the family's been stopped at the port. The children are temporarily removed. The parents agree that they should be tagged by GPS electronic tagging. It's a system that's down here by names. You may have heard about it in criminal cases. It's what we do with high-risk people who are released on probation. But um, our president of our family division, following on from a child abduction um, examples in former years, decided to use it creatively in family cases because if the parent or the person who, who is to be tagged consents to so doing, what it means is there's an electronic device that they wear which can tell you not simply whether they're in a home, but it can set exclusion zones, which means that that person, if they go near an airport or a port, an immediate alert goes through the police connection system, the social service system, and they can be tamed and stopped. It's a pretty effective regulator of where someone can go. It's not perfect, but it's a good start. In that situation, if you have stopped the main risk to the child, which is being taken to ISIS, and you're left with a six-month-old baby, and the six-month-old baby and the mother were breastfeeding, for example, and the connection between them is intense and positive. That six-month-old baby is not going to be affected, is it, by words in the household, ideology spoken of in the household, because it's not going to be susceptible. It's not going to know what's being said or done. So do you then remove the six-month-old baby and return it to the parents? If you do that, and don't forget you've got a sibling group, a six-month-old and a 14-year-old boy, what do you do about the 14-year-old boy? So he's now in foster care. Baby's gone back. He's 14. No one likes being in foster care. They may be fantastic foster care homes, but in the main, I say no one. Most love persists between a child and a parent, sometimes even if abuse has happened. In the house such as this, where there's no obvious evidence to the 14-year-old boy that he has been abused by his parents, he is going to want to go back. If you say a 14-year-old remains in care, are you at risk of making that child highly susceptible to the type of propaganda that says Muslim families are targeted? Are you then making the risk that he may start to delve into the belief system more acute by leaving him in foster care than if you're returning to home with strict guidelines? with conditions about who is seen by, what school he goes to, what the teachers are allowed to discuss with him, with those type of safeguards. It is a difficult question, but that is why it's a classic example of every child is unique. One, one set of judgments for one child does not fit the other. It's got to be an individual care plan for an individual child. So it's, it's a tough call. I don't envy the judges that do this type of work, but it's one which is absolutely fundamental if we are going to make sure that when cases of this nature cross our family courtroom door, we do not overreact. We properly probe. We don't allow ourselves to be deceived, which is why we ask for the evidence, but we do not lead to judgment. And we look for creative, positive ways in which we can address what otherwise will be a situation which, frankly, within the community, will be one very hard in order to contain. So, concluding remarks, if I may. 
we are dealing with a fluid situation in the family division. Up until now, we have been dealing with cases where it's been a desire in some families to leave the United Kingdom to go to ISIS in order to follow the call. But given what's happening in Mosul, is that any longer an attractive option? Is that really what's going to be happening for months on in? Or is the risk going to change? Is it going to be a case that those who have gone to follow the call, are they going to want to return? In which case, it's a different nature of risk, isn't it? It's not a question of stopping someone from doing something which exposes them to risk of harm or death. It's then a question of identifying whether risk moves from abroad <coughs> and moves back to the United Kingdom within the family home. And we need to be alert to those shifts and changes. So it's an evolving situation. But what I do want you to leave um, this room with is a very firm message that there has been nothing new in terms of statute, in terms of the way in which we deal with cases involving Muslim families. That is not the way we deal with things in the family court system. The law we apply, the principles of justice we apply, the case law we have is applicable over the whole raft of society that crosses our doors. Because what we have said here about radicalism could just as easily be said, for example, about fascist behaviour. And if that becomes on the rise, that's going to have to be something we address. So what we are talking about here is not an ideology that causes harm and it's immoral to members of society. It's about an ideology that starts to transgress and morph into something that becomes a very dangerous presence within a family home where a child may be affected by it. And that's something that crosses all type of jurisdictions, all religions and all cultures. So please don't leave this lecture thinking that this is simply talking about one particular creed, one particular group or one particular faith. It certainly is not. But the lessons that we have from the precedent and the case law could equally be applied elsewhere. So um, that is my romp through radicalism. I'm pleased to say that I've finished with five minutes, which is pretty remarkable. And so, therefore, if anyone has any questions, then um, please feel free to ask. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.